listening to This Thing We Call Art, a podcast about something that's time-based. It's months. It's months of work. It's months of reading. It's, it's a mixture of reading groups, of, you know, cleaning the fridge and finding something dead at the back. It's, you know, it's going to the fabric shop. It's, it's you know, it's chatting to your granny. It's all these things that come together over a longer space of time. I'm your host, Kelly Lloyd, a visual artist, essayist, and educator currently based in the UK. I've been interviewing people in the arts about their livelihood since 2017, and today you're going to hear a conversation I had on the 25th of February, 2021, with Nicole Morris. Nicole Morris is an artist working across gallery education and community settings, both in a solo and collaborative context. Her work uses textiles and film to explore themes of domesticity and labor and how these are performed or represented in new contexts. Her work has recently been included in exhibitions and projects at the Foundling Museum, Southwark Park Galleries, Royal Museum's Greenwich, The Drawing Room, Space, South London Gallery, and Jerwood, all in London, as well as Baltic and Gateshead, Blue Coat in Liverpool, G39 in Cardiff, and the National Gallery in Prague. I met Nicole in 2019 at her opening for interiors at Compressor Projects in South London. I came with my friend Julia, who introduced us and who has since created opportunities for me to run into Nicole again. I asked Nicole if I could interview her in 2019, and she agreed, but our schedules didn't allow us to actually make it happen until last year. Our conversation was two and a half hours long, and while I wish I could share it with you in its entirety, today you'll listen to excerpts from it. I'm going to drop you 30 minutes into our conversation. And, you know, I think in some ways, my work as an educator is a lot more, like, politically... Hmm clear Mm. than my work as like an artist Mm -mm. that's really interesting though isn't it also like just having two strands to a practice so being like solo artist artist educator like already is kind of interesting but then also what an artist educator role can offer you and that political clarity I think the question is why is that political clarity not in the solo art world and that surely has to do with you know where the art world belongs and where those solo exhibition belongs to in that kind of very, very clear capitalist um, commercialized world. And you know that your presence in it is limited because if you're not represented, you have a very limited time there. So you tread carefully. And that I think is a, is a huge um, problem actually. Um, I think quite a lot of artists have that. Yeah. Because you respond in form Mm. to all of these things. So Mm. like, yeah, like a solo exhibition is a completely different form than Mm. a moment where you get to speak to people in a way Mm. that could be instructive for you both. Mm. Mm. Um, And yeah, like, how is it that this form kind of can be expanded a bit? I think that's something I think about quite a lot. Like, so if you have like these education moments where you have these one-to-ones right and you get in a space with people and you talk and you create something and it's often like quite politically motivated and I often see those moments like almost like what do you call it like consciousness raising like which is like kind of on the left like a massive thing like and I'm always like why why can we not have this as consciousness raising because why can it not belong to like a left project but um I think it can't because those spaces do still despite being able to be more political need to remain neutral because you need to be able to have you know this freedom of speech within those 
spaces because you know there's so many education spaces that are getting more and more shut down like schools you obviously don't have much freedom of speech within you know overall and then you have like current you know right-wing uh, people trying to stop um freedom of speech within universities for example um which is kind of interesting in terms of it will always affect the left and if you know these these kind of things are not about protecting us from like fascism <laughs> they're about the threat of like socialism which is mad i think there's something interesting about that lack of conversation that happens in those solo exhibition spaces. So you don't put up an exhibition and then have a load of people have those conversations that you have in like workshops. And why does that not happen? Because it's interesting when you write like an arts council application, you talk about like, how will we measure the success of this exhibition? And you have to like, use neoliberal language around like, oh, well, you know, um, I'll create like um, an interactive website that will encourage people to like type type their responses. I'll host a talk, I'll da, 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 da. but it's never the same as when you get a group of people and you explore something together. And I think, I think there's something in that, that exploration from the beginning does not happen in those solo exhibition spaces. You are not experiencing something together. And I think that lack of togetherness means that it enters into the private sphere, right? Yeah, I mean, I think you put it so clearly that, that like we have to preserve this object. Like we have to preserve the individual like in these solo exhibition space. Yeah, so we can sell this object yeah. and then we can sell this individual um, mm. as like being so important. And so as soon as you start, you know, yeah, like complicating the idea of like the individual and the individual object, mm. then everything just kind of like falls apart. It also has that impact of, okay, we couldn't hit the target audience for the funder through the exhibition will mop it up through these outreach projects that will happen alongside it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like no one's gonna come to the show because people don't come to shows other than for like the openings. Um, so how can we yeah, get more bodies in the door? Um, so how can we create public programming that complicates those relationships and like is more participatory at their core? Um, and for me, you know, working in a number of different ways, including um, like as an educator, now as a student, um, like as a, a person who works in collectives, as a person who's interested in care, you know, like these things, the thing that is always threatened is my solo art practice. Yeah. Like I always feel like I need to protect it in order to like protect my future. Mm. Because like, there's no way I'm gonna be able to pay off my student loans unless I get a MacArthur Genius Award. And I'm not gonna get a <laughs> MacArthur Genius Award for my like interesting participatory projects. I mean, I could, I might, you know, like actually I might, but like, but it's quite interesting the people who mm. are held up. It's really tricky. Mm. So I wonder what <laughs> that's about my need to protect the thing that I feel like is mine. Mm. Well, yeah. that's it, because there's something there about control that you're talking about. But I think there's something interesting when you say like, you're never gonna win the award for blah, blah, blah. And that for you is like the measure perhaps of your success as your career. And I think probably here, you know, a Paul Hamlin award would would probably make you feel like, yeah, you've, you've nailed it. Or the Max Mara, 
art prose for women or I don't know there's loads of them right but that's what the deconstruction needs to be is that these awards need to be refocused on what kind of practices we're awarding um but I don't know yeah I think there's something about what the award supports that would then go on to change your mindset about your own artistic identity and what you need to protect because I have the same where it's like I I have to be in the studio like if I'm not in the studio you know doing my work then I'm not validated I'm not here I'm not whatever but more and more the work is taken over by the participatory work by these other strings on the bow of whatever it is this career is but yeah it's something about changing how we value these other strings that would enable us to release perhaps this care over this actually hugely problematic ideal of what art is like on paper politically in conversation I don't believe it actually like like come on like what what are you asking for some time to you know <laughs> spend some time making a masterpiece in a room that then could get bought by a rich philanthropist you know like what like that is not what I believe the world you know I have you know and yet we want to preserve that so I think there's something in there isn't there yeah but it's so tricky because like I want to I feel like the answer is always just more just like mm much more money um because I feel like there's this um there's this instrumentalization of art or welfare that the state should be providing so much of funding is for projects who knows what you would actually come up with if you were given the time in a studio with enough money if it's not project-based, you may come around on the other side to making something that is like more of a contribution to what we Mm. need culture to be Mm. than this commodity object that like is a part of this kind of like, you know, hyper productivity. That thing around just wanting time like everyone wants time if you got a shitload of money got put on a residency right what would you do with that like I was saying to my partner the other day like my life is so far from that moment of like having time to just make that I think if someone actually did just like drop me somewhere and say we trust you we value you I'm so far mentally removed from it right now that I don't know what I'd do like so I went on a residency a year year and a half no oh probably two years now gosh yeah and I just remember being like it was so hard to get on it like it was so hard to organize the childcare, to organize um time off three jobs that I was that I had Um, I had to organize something like 10 train rides because I needed to come back for a job to go back out again. That actually, by the time I got there, I literally was like, I don't have a fucking creative bone in my body. Do you you know, because you're stripped bare of of any energy, like creativity isn't just there. Like I think this pandemic has been really interesting to like, it's really stripped the like 
kind of class, uh, race, like all these divisions, right? That like limit you, your access to having this, this career, right? And you can see on Instagram, like all these people, they're just like, they've been so productive and lockdown's just, you know, I just can't stop. I'm just like, I'm so inspired by my drawings or whatever it is they're doing. And I was just like, mate, like, like the most creative thing for me right now is making a cup of tea. Like, <laughs> like how many times I'm gonna stir it? Like, and I think there's something in that, isn't there? In terms of that representation of that artist at being, you know, free of any life burdens, any life, you know, troubles, which are often monetized issues, right? Um, you know, they're in the place in the world they want to be. They have probably no family, like the family is absent. Um, the weather is beautiful. They have no mental health, you know, conditions. They are just living this time, apart from perhaps a slight concern whether the pigment is right, yeah? And they just can paint and it's always paint as well, which is, I think is interesting, right? You're always gonna paint. So then how does the artist that doesn't paint exist? How does the artist that has all these other commitments? Yeah, and also like that image of that artist is so far removed from so many people's family, like, like heritage that you could never like hold your head up in a family dinner and be like, I wanna be that because they'd be like, <laughs> are you joking? But it is just this funny thing where we can just throw it around. There's no value in, in that unless there's that, that value of that image of that white man in that ridiculous loft apartment. <laughs> One of the beautiful things about art is its accessibility, you know, but at the same time, it's a discipline. Um, and like whenever we in the arts have, need to have, want to have a disciplinary conversation, then people hate us because it's inaccessible. But then also people are constantly trying to be like, everyone's an artist, like, um, you know, design thinking, not that art and design are the same thing, but like, there is this kind of general proliferation of creativity, which yes, does belong to everyone, but is like entirely different than what it means to concern yourself with like a discipline. And mm -hmm. I don't understand why like other people get to have <laughs> disciplines yeah. and we don't get to have a discipline. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like we don't get to have yeah. a specialty. Mm. It's beautiful that it's this thing that everyone can be an artist but also like I'm unwilling to say that everyone can be an artist when I don't have a job. <laughs> like <Yeah. laughs> as soon as I get a job yeah. as an artist, then sure, you can be an artist, you can be an artist, yeah. like whatever. Yeah, it's funny because when someone asks you what you do, like this is an ongoing, because all this is around like our identities and how we've been valued in society or, or devalued, I guess. And, you know, so in the world of mum school drop-offs, right? The conversation about what you do seems to come up. But um, I'm always like tripping a bit on like what I say, cause I, you know, it's like, well, okay, what, what am I? So what's, what's my career? So often in those environments, I'll say, um, oh, I run this youth program. It's much easier to say that because it's really accessible. But then sometimes, 
every now and again, I kind of think, oh no, okay. And I say, oh, I'm an artist. And I, I swear, as I say it, artist and asshole, they just sound the same, right? Like, and I feel like the face of the person listening just, do you know what I mean? Because it, 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 it separates that person and it elevates you. It says, I'm an artist. It does also create that weird hierarchy, which, which harks back to that image, doesn't it? It harks back to that kind of inaccessible, I'm not represented, I'm not present in that image of what that artist is. And then if you know the person you're talking to, you'll get, they'll often ask a few questions like, oh, what, what do you do? And then even if you go down that, like if I'm like, oh, I make kind of textiles and film, I often lose someone at that point if they keep going and then I start talking about how I'm interested in the like language or the process of the two mediums and how they cross over like they've gone they have totally gone they are nodding but they're not present they're chopping they're do you know what I mean they're making that dinner that night they're working out and it's so interesting isn't it because for there to be such a production line of of people being sent through this system of like learning this discourse that then is like wholly untranslatable to like society why are we learning it like what because in those workshops in those workshops I normally would steer away from talking too much about my practice at the beginning because I feel like I haven't got the people on board I need to get them on board before I even start because why should they learn more about me than I about them? I always feel that at the beginning. Um, and I also think it's about like having a situation where someone understands a bit more or you've, you have a mutual dialogue. I think it's a lot around dialogue. It's a lot around language, isn't it? It's around, we need to speak the same language. It's so interesting that you can track like where you lose people. But I, but I did wonder, about fabric and video. I don't really see fabric and video together. Yeah, so I guess like more like film. So mm. you think about analog film and you think about textiles. I'm quite interested in the processes you can use within them both being quite transferable. So for example, um, currently working on like, patchwork so patchwork in uh, textiles being when you kind of sew things alongside and build up a space through you know joining and those joins can be different scenes blah 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 um, and within that you have the capacity to have lots of different like visual images but then if you think about what that is in film it's that splicing of film so if you get like a strip of film you cut it up you can patchwork it together in different ways. So I'm interested in how those two have that same process. Um, so in that project with Julia, that um, Dear World project, um, I guess that kind of shared process was, um, I was looking at green screen. So green screen in video being you know, when you um, cover something green, it becomes transparent, then you can have something layered underneath. So it has that potential to layer up, yeah? Um, so 
for those objects that I green screened, which is obviously a video process, the, the layer I put beneath was film, I drew on film and that became the layer between, so it kind of still felt quite analog. And then in textiles, the teak being um, the wax that you put onto a fabric and then the wax protects what is waxed and anything that isn't waxed gets, so you again have this potential to build up. So I'm really interested and how these crossovers can happen between the two mediums. I mean, it's an exploration really, it's kind of like curiosity and what, and then how they might come together in the end. So how they can come together to be kind of a viewing system. I'm interested in how, yeah, how um, the, the textiles can become like almost like a device for you to see film um, and how that can be activated by somebody whether that's you know a member of the gallery staff or whether that's a viewer coming in yeah so I'm interested in those kind of I guess like viewing systems is what I kind of refer to them as ways of seeing film in different ways but then I don't want it to belittle the textiles in that way they're not just devices to see film it's really interesting the kind of labor behind them and how they are time-based as much as the film is, right? So I'm interested in the textiles, feeling like films, feeling like they have, yeah, a duration. Um, yeah, and I guess like in terms of content, I think there's been like quite a, like a shift, like I think I've always been interested in, you know, bodies being together and the, I don't know, in like much earlier work, I was really interested in a more kind of like, like the sensual tactility of a body and how it's breath or it's stubble or it's sweat might, yeah, be the focus. It's funny, the materiality of work that I miss now mm -hmm. in a way that I like, that wasn't really my vibe yeah. before the pandemic. Yeah. But mm -hmm. now like, oh my God, it'd be so nice to have such like, such work I mean I think that's something I've talked about a lot in the last you know year is the um lack of visual stimulus like and that visual stimulus is obviously like really tactile and it maybe that's sorry that's wrong it's not a lack of visual stimulus we we have loads of online content there's too much online content like I've never seen so much online content in my life like it's the lack of the the tactile within that that visual so and all those incidental moments that happen along the way like because you might you know I, I'm a big fan of like a day a day of going to galleries or whatever but it's often like you go see four shows or something and you know sometimes it's like oh really <laughs> oh, I've been looking forward to this a bit disappointed but then you might see something on the way that's like oh that was weird and amazing or you hear a conversation or yeah you get a coffee yeah, yeah. it's those incidental inter interruptions that that actually can become the creative process as opposed to what you think is so and I think again we can translate that back to the beginning of this conversation like you might have this exhibition you know which is the showstopper you know that's you know what what the world thinks is what's bringing people but then you have this little offside project where they've got like a kind of less visible artist in. And actually what's going on in there 
could end up being the thing you take away, like um, at the Whitechapel, um, just before this lockdown, there was like a little side room show of like gallery education through Whitechapel since whatever. Um, I, I, I didn't have much time, I didn't spend long in it, but there is something so exciting about looking at photographs of those like workshop sessions, isn't it? I find them really interesting in the same way that I find looking at um, images of like artists in their studios really interesting or um, a particular pleasure of mine is um, Phila de Barlow when she had um, her children, she made quite a lot of work in home. Um, and there's like a whole series of these beautiful sculptures that got put like on top of ironing boards, on top of televisions, you know, they kind of like took over the domestic space. And I, I love those images. It's like interior decor, isn't it? It's like looking in like whatever those magazines are, you know. Um, yeah. Voyeurism. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's voyeurism really, isn't it? But there's something in that that I think is missing in the exhibition space. And there's something I think I've always talked about is like when you, when you work on a show, you have so much, like you said it, like this is gonna be my moment because you think this is the moment where you're gonna share everything, your work and, and in those moments of like total, like, you know, it's like, it's like, uh, what's it called when you're like madly in love? Like you're, you know, it's not desire, not, it's, I can't remember the word. Anyway, it's that moment and you put it out there, but actually so much is missing. There's a reduction that happens in that process. Like I remember this exhibition that I had and I had this studio visit um, beforehand and um, I was showing this person all these ideas and da da da. And she was actually writing this text on the, on the show. And I remember the text being like so exciting and because it really captured that moment in the studio that was full of these ideas. And the actual, what I actually put forward into the exhibition was rubbish. Like it was so, so reduced. It was so reductive of, of that entire process. And I think, I think unfortunately that end point, that kind of product belongs to that capitalist market, but is what you get known for. So it's that caption of textiles and film. What's that look like? It's, you know, and the more, you can make that accessible in terms of like, yeah, she makes yellow fabrics and purple films. People get them and that's when it becomes a successful product. That's when it evolves. That's when people start calling on you because, you know, they recognize it. They know what you're doing. The minute it gets too far down that other bit where you try and try and create that whole like process, which is so you know, multifaceted, it has lots of voices, it's got so many textures and mediums, um, it, it's gone, it doesn't, it's not, it, it lacks, it's not accessible and it, and it takes us back to that, those conversations that I had with that, you know, that conversation with that mum, you know, that blank, how can you possibly translate that whole, you know, it's time-based, it's months, it's months of work, it's months of reading, it's it's a mixture of reading groups of, um, you know, cleaning the fridge and finding something dead at the back. It's, you know, it's, it's going to the fabric shop. It's, you know, chatting to your granny. It's all these things um, that come together 
over a longer space of time. And I think it does not belong to that product. And that's why I think this art career has to be seen as a really long, long haul. Like you need to know that like it's, it's not gonna be now. There's no, I think if you start seeing it as like, this is my moment, you're gonna, you know, unless you have like a real desire to, you know, belong to that world. Cause you, you know, plenty of people really desire that. They desire representation. They desire to be marketable, you know, and that is definitely a valid path. And I totally think if people want to do that, that's, that's cool. And that keeps that economic world going. But I think there's a whole other world that needs to be revalidated. And I think the validation has to come from within, not outside. Yeah. Yeah. What a beautiful. Um, yeah, no, I mean it's um, yeah, like my god, good job busting out just like a manifesto. I mean, I think that's the privilege of being an artist is that we mm. get to understand, we get to be friends with each other, we get to wander into each other's studios, you know, and sure, yeah, we're like, you know, we see the books on people's tables, but then our conversations are more like, how are you feeling? Like, what is that material you're using? Or like, oh my God, that's so funny. Like my cat looks like this piece of toast on your floor. Or, you know, it's like you have all it, like you, it's more of the, you know, and you can be like, oh my God, I found this dead thing behind my fridge. You know, like things are able to breathe. And I think you, as artists, we do understand that like museums are mausoleums and that like, once we have a show, it's dead. It's like dead stuff, you know? Um, But then it's weird that the dead stuff is the thing that seems like the end goal when really it's kind of like an exorcism, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah, Um, yeah. It's like, you have to cast things out of your studio and out of your mind so you can like move on to the next, you know? I'm a fairly minimalist maker, I think, just in the way that like, in my objects there are only really ever like two or three things going on and it's the same thing with like an installation or a show like there's only really ever like two or three things going on Mm. and I think that is because there's only so much you can fit in an object there's only so much you can fit in a show because you are just reducing and reducing Mm. um and so I love thinking about how I can build content like across shows Mm, yeah Um, Mm. and across a lifetime of making yeah Mm. and then maybe in that be able to approximate like a at least slightly larger percentage of like what are these moments that actually go into Mm. uh these moments that I then create for other people Mm. yeah and I think there's something in there about the archive as well I think that's quite interesting like I really do feel that my practice but like each show or each project like you know enters the archive and I'm really interested in how they coexist and how you could look at the images you know and how those conversations you know cross over etc yeah and I mean I guess like the one of the most accessible forms of an archive is like a retrospective yeah but then that goes into this like the monograph that goes into this again like this um glorification of like the individual I always love the first couple of rooms those early works are oh, yeah. always so interesting and like so much more dynamic and like open aren't they and then you have that reduction actually as you go through the rooms it's like okay okay so we started off with oh, okay so now we're just on one line okay so you went from a heap of shapes and color and da 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 to, to just something really 
pad bag yeah yeah and then you like see their commercial success and you're like okay now you're just like hitting the marks would be interesting to kind of compare though like how for example the um the kind of rooms evolve um between a, a woman and a man or you know um a black woman and a, a white woman like how those evolutions happen and how actual more visibility or something might impact on what they're able to make um in terms of what again what they're being validated to do yeah mm -hmm. and yeah like can you see how their lives are actually fundamentally different yeah within this progression yeah. retrospective or yeah. is it like what we were talking about before with a solo exhibition mm -hmm. where it is purely form where mm -hmm. like there's no room for <laughs> like and then she did nothing from 1920 to mm -hmm. <laughs> 1940 you know but it's really interesting how the narrative as well is created around that like I remember when um I took from my studio I took six months off when I literally gave birth to Ela. Six months is nothing. Like you, statutory, are allowed like a year, like nine months to twelve. Right? That's a long, you know, a lot longer than I think it was five or six months. Um, and I always remember I spoke to this guy who said, um, "Yeah, so it would probably be good in what you write to just outline you've taken some time out." I was like, in that five months, <laughs> I did have a show. Yeah. <laughs> I gave birth and then breastfed, which is like a long job. Um, and I just thought that was really interesting, like that, that concept of taking time out and what gets removed in the narrative. I mean, I can only speak from understanding the UK system, really, childcare system, but you don't get free childcare until the child is three. That's three years, three years, which is an awful long time for you to have to pay for your childcare yourself, which is obviously only for people that can afford it. Or you take a huge cut in your career. Like I remember when Ula was born, I had three jobs and then having Ula obviously became job said and I remember being like what needs to go and I kept stripping it back kept stripping it back until you know ended up you know having government support um which isn't much um at all um but also it's taking a, a hit on on your um life in terms of like what you know because you know you can't really you know, justify having a studio or, or a time if you can't afford dinner yeah. or something. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in other places, childcare is paid for from, you know, a year or even younger, you know, state, state paid maternity, then straight into childcare provision that's paid. This yeah. system is archaic, it's sexist, it's, it's unjust, um, and it creates this kind of, yeah, destruction of careers it, it just re re-amplifies the ladder of division and also like they talk about the double shift you know like um reproductive labor so if you think about um your caring responsibilities so the idea that you would work all day and then you go home and you're going to have yeah another shift of 
whatever that caring responsibility is. Um, you know, there's no break. <laughs> um, whereas if a state recognizes reproductive labor, which is, which is saying that, that these things, which is, do not, are not worthy of economic support, they're saying that having children, despite being like key to the economy growth, they're saying that that is not worthy of being financially supported. They're saying that having elderly cared for is not worthy. They're saying that um, cleaning is, you know, something we don't need to pay for. You know, if you think about all those reproductive labor costs, they don't pay for any of them, which means that um, your actual paid labor is cut and then just kind of all falls in um, into this devalued sense of, of identity, of purpose. Of, and then you get this moment, I think, where then the state starts paying when they're like three or something. And then you're just picking up the pieces of, of a very broken career and a broken sense of self because you've fought so hard to just keep your foot in something. And then when you come back, everything's kind of, you know, changed or you know like with that business school of you know degrees and stuff you get people coming in that are churned in and out so every year you're already being kind of you know put further down to then dare take so I think there's something in that definitely around state recognition yeah I'm just got a book um it's called work won't love you back and it's by um someone called Sarah Jaffe it's all about that kind of idea about like emotional labor um there's actually a whole section on on an artist which I'm kind of really interested in what what she'll say about that but yeah and I think I think that is like really critical isn't it to a lot of people so and I think perhaps this is what this book is will talk about is that um idea around your whole value or identity is based on paid labor that won't love you back. So, you know, your art career is like, you know, do you want to be, you know, 70 with this same career? Like, is that enough to keep you driving or have you neglected other parts of yourself? Like, definitely, I remember when, like before I had Ela, like, having a weekend off was like such a really abstract and difficult concept. Like I found it really hard. I was like, I can't possibly take two days off. It's, you know, so I would always just have one. And even that day was hard where it'd be all around like, have I done enough? You know, I could have gone to see a show. Um, it's like a really unhealthy relationship with yourself and, you know, time and, but then when you have a child, like all your time is off all of a sudden, but it's not at all. It's a totally different job. But then, but then that's kind of interesting as well. So then you become this onlooker. So you see, like I have plenty of friends that have a terrible relationship with self-care and, you know, work all the time. And I see that and I'm like, wow, I feel miles away from that now. Um but then at the same time, you become this onlooker into the art world and all its like systemic failings. <laughs> um, but then also you have this ongoing 
you know, anxiety about never being in, always being out. But then perhaps it's better to be out looking in, you know. But I do think um, it is definitely doable having a child. I think it is actually one of the, like, it's like the most incredible thing. And I think um, you can totally keep up a practice. It's more challenging, but it's worth every minute. It's about seeing it as this longer thing because you have this new relationship. It's falling in love, but in like the most incredible way, like, and every day something grows and it's, it's worth it. And it's, it, it's worth being on the outside because that outside is way bigger. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it clears that tunnel vision. It clears it. Cause it's like, you don't want a life that's just perpetually like you're failing yourself always. Like there's something just incredible about like Eula's learning to read, like just watching her be able to read a word is like the most fulfilling moment, but it also takes you beyond it. And it's not about, it doesn't feel like narcissistic. And I think it makes you want to work more with people. It makes you want to value like that kind of desire to, you know, improve society. Like, <laughs> anyway, makes you put your politics more present as well, I think. Um, I studied abroad in London during grad school for like three weeks. And we met this one, um, I think he was an art historian. So we were mm. political murals, both in Belfast. And also I think he, he said he was someplace else, maybe South Africa. I'm not, I don't know if I'm remembering correctly, but, and I remember at the end of this, like really just lovely talk, you know, like when you just go to talks with some people and you, yeah, you like fall in love with them. And um, there's this lovely person. And then at the end, my professor who was interviewing him asked like, you know, just do you have any general advice for, for people? And he said, fall in love. Um, <laughs> and I've always thought about that. And as like a kind of connection to like a wider humanity yeah yeah uh, that's it that's the, yeah it's that what he meant yeah that's that's so true it's about like just recentering as well isn't it it's like come on like this is not everything isn't it and if it is then is that yeah is that what you want it's not gonna love you back yeah <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, thank you so much. Oh, thanks, Kelly. Yeah, so nice. If you are interested in hearing more excerpts from conversations I've had with people in the arts over the years, head over to the website thisthingwecallart.com. This podcast was funded by the Arts Council England, ArtQuest, The Gain Trust, and Tillis Studios. If you would like to help make the next season of this podcast a reality, please consider rating and reviewing this podcast on iTunes, becoming a Patreon member, or donating through the PayPal link on the project's website. The logo was designed by Eva DeWerden, the episode artwork was created by Fiona Riley, and the theme song was made by Alessandro Moroni. This podcast was produced by me, your host, Kelly Lloyd. Thanks so much for listening, and tune in next week for my conversation with Leah Capaldi. <laughs>